Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome to the Data Driven Podcast sponsored by Abzuba. Abzuba is a one stop shop for all of your AI solutions. Today, we are joined by Krishna Kumar Ramanujam, the Chief Architect, EVP, and India Country Head for Abzuba. KK, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you? I am awesome. Look, let's get a little bit of your background for context, and then we can jump right into some of the main topics we're going to cover today. Sure. I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, way back in 1990. And I worked in hardware for a couple of years. I used to roam around with a soldering iron in my hand and doing stuff with microprocessors and assembly language and stuff like that. Then I did my master's also from IIT Bombay. And then I joined IBM, where I was there for about three years. And that's when I got introduced to what was called data mining at the time. So we were doing some very interesting work in IBM. We worked actually, uh, my boss was in IBM uh, EJ Watson Research Center in Hawthorne, New York. And he came up with the idea of using data mining for sports because he wanted to make it you know, easy to use. So we did data mining for the National Basketball Association. And uh, you know that's when I went over to the US and we worked with a lot of NBA teams, including the LA Lakers, the New York Knicks, Orlando Magic and so on. So we got to see some NBA games that were very cool. And we also went to the Atlanta Olympics, actually. We helped the US women's team analyze their opponents and we sent them analysis. And you know, they won the gold. So we got an autographed basketball from them. That's awesome. Yeah, that was very, very cool stuff for a bunch of you know young kids uh, straight out of grad school to be doing. So it was great fun. So and we got showcased, you know, wherever there was this bunch of people out of IBM research who are doing this really great stuff on analytics and they're using it in basketball. And, you know, that was uh, very good. But what was it like as IBM going to the Lakers? That's like almost 30 years ago now. And then trying to sell them on the fact that you can use data analytics to give them some kind of edge. What was that like? Frankly speaking, I was a guy behind the scenes doing the coding, so I wasn't involved in those deals at that time. Fair enough. But it was part of IBM Sports Marketing Group. So, you know, IBM has a lot of uh, money and uh, sponsorship of major sports events, including the Olympics, golf, you know, the tennis majors, and basketball. Right. So it is part of a sponsorship deal, really, with, uh, with the NBA. Fair enough. Okay. I just think it's amazing that even 30 years ago, people were talking about this. And maybe to move forward we can just get a couple of definitions out of the way and maybe you can do that. How do you differentiate between data engineering and data science? Words I think that people throw around but may not really know what they mean. Right, that's a very good uh, question actually. So data science, to me data science is the entire process of analyzing data and coming up with some, uh, perhaps some predictions or some uh, results of your analysis. And in order to do that, you need to make sure that you have the right data you have the data in the right volume, you have the cleanest data possible, et cetera. And that's where data engineering comes in. So when I speak, uh, sometimes I give talks at colleges and so on, and there are a bunch of people who are studying data science. And I tell them, you know, it's all very nice uh, saying you're a data scientist, but 70% of the work that you're gonna be doing in the real world is going to be around data engineering. That means ensuring that you have good, clean data to work with, because otherwise, your an, uh, analysis is all going to be, uh, you know, screwed up because you're garbage in, garbage out, right? So that's, I think, the fundamental difference. 
Can you also walk us through what a typical sort of artificial intelligence or AI journey is for a company that's starting to implement data analysis, machine learning, and ML ops? And maybe what are the typical choices that a company has to make around that? What do you see that journey look like? Very interesting question. And, you know, we've been through that uh, at Abzuba, of course, we've been through a lot of services. We provide analytic services to our customers. And lately, and I'm sure we talk about it, we are developing our own AI platform or MLOps platform. So every company goes through this journey where you start off with a problem and you maybe you have a couple of people who are interested in uh, analytics. They may not have the knowledge, but they, they can operate an Excel sheet and they start digging around and trying to say, you know, can we actually do some predictive modeling? And they read up, maybe they learn Python and they go ahead and they build models. And that's extremely exciting because you start getting results pretty soon. And in today's world, you know, there's a bunch of libraries out there. So a kid in high school can actually take some of those libraries and build fairly sophisticated models. And that's that's what happens. That's the first success you get, and you're tremendously excited. Right. Then you hit kind of a barrier, because what happens then is that uh, then your uh, business says, okay, now I want this in production, because I want to now start using it in real-world scenarios. It's not just a toy anymore that you're playing around in your little lab or whatever. So you want it in production. And that's when the challenges come in because you need to make sure that you can run these models on a scale 24 by seven, you need to have them responsive. And that's where I think uh, the initial uh, wild west kind of a scenario is no longer applicable. And you need really good solid processes to be able to ensure that your models get into production. So that's kind of the level two that you get into at that point. Right. But what are some of these major hurdles, right? Like, like you said, even a high school kid can go out and find some of these models and build like really simple predictive analysis or predictive data analysis in an Excel spreadsheet. I'm sure that I was doing that, you know, when I was at Morgan Stanley or at Goldman Sachs. But when you really want to get into a sort of full scale data analysis, you mentioned earlier, like you want your data to be clean. How do you even, de how do you even define what clean data is? And what do people really need to consider when they're, when they have data and, and they need to clean it? Right. Good, good point there. So, so there's so many challenges, you know, uh, just considering cleanliness of data. So you need to ensure that the data uh, is uh, full. There are no gaps in it. The fields in the data are consistent and reliably consistent in the sense that uh, if you get some kind of data today, it's going to be the same kind of schema, the same uh, fields that you get, let's say one month later on. Otherwise, you have to keep changing your model every time or you're changing your data engineering pipeline every time. So that's that's one challenge, just making sure that you know what you're an analyzing and, uh, and the fields are all clean. The second challenge could be of ensuring that this happens at scale. That means that you need to set up your data pipelines so that when your data is flowing from different data sources, you have it set up so it's a continuous process. You can continually keep analyzing the data, keep building your models, keep retraining them. The third challenge could be just your different data sources. You could have data coming in from databases, from flat files, from spreadsheets, from you know big data sources, from the cloud, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you need to make sure that your system takes care of all of this. So that's when I mean you know that it's it's you move from level one to level two in the sense it's not just I have a little CSV file and I'm <laughs> writing a Python code to do it. It's a different you know ball game completely. But what do you do if, let's say, the IT team has a vision for what that data analysis, we can talk about predictive, we can talk about a bunch of different types of data analysis, right? Descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, all these types of data analysis. But what if the IT team has one thing in mind, but the business has another thing in mind? 
right? How do you work? How do you get those two teams to work together when their vision about what that's supposed to look like and actually the non-triviality about it is understood by one side and not by the other side, right? Businesses sometimes just think, just tell me what to do. How do you get past that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a challenge. But, you know, in all these kind of situations, the business obviously takes a priority in my, in my head, at least. So you have to make sure that because that's the end problem that you're solving. It's the business that provides the funding firstly. So you need to make sure that they're happy. So, so you need to ensure that, you know, their needs are met and you need to work with IT to ensure that the uh, upstream data pipelines, make sure that you have the data in place in order to meet that business need. So sometimes uh, like, for example, a POC is a good starting point. You start with a small amount of data that's already clean, make sure the business uh, is happy with the results. And then you go back to the IT guys and say, now I need this on a continual basis. Can you can you do that for me? So right. that's that's one way. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about this idea of non-triviality and scale. How can even a small company, like big companies have plenty of resources, but how can small and sort of medium-sized companies implement data analysis so they're not losing out when it comes to understanding the information that they do have, they're not losing out to bigger companies that just have way more resources. Right, that's, you know, it's actually becoming easier today because uh, if you were to ask the same question, let's say uh, 10 years back, then there would have been a big gap between the biggies and the, the small guys, because as you said, the big guys have all the data. But today it's actually much easier because a lot of that data is available uh, in the open uh, open source or in the public domain. And there, there are a bunch of tools which are uh, called MLOps tools, which help you to uh, actually get started on this journey. So if I were a small to medium-sized company embarking on my data science or analytics journey, I would definitely look at some of these MLOps tools that are available because that helps you to build your infrastructure. It takes care of what I call the plumbing. So your Data scientists don't need to worry about, you know, setting up a Kubernetes cluster or a Spark cluster or worry about your data pipelines and containerization and all that kind of stuff. You focus primarily on the business problems. I would definitely recommend, you know, some investigating some of those tools. And for people that don't necessarily know, right? I mean, I think the market is out there talking about, we said this already, data, data analysis, data engineering, and I still think most people are confused about what it is. You just threw out this term ML ops. <laughs> right. <laughs> What does that mean? And what does it mean at scale? Right. So as I said, one of the big problems of data science is that it's e emerging. So it's obviously in the last maybe seven or eight years, it's become extremely critical for enterprises. And it's emerging from the labs to places where it's actually running in production. And you have so many organizations which actually depend their, you know, for their business on AIML uh, models, which are out there in production. Now there's a bunch of tools which are available, which help you to make that transition from going from the lab into production, from your development environment into production. And those are what I call MLOps tools. So it's like a mixture or a marriage between machine learning and your DevOps. So what DevOps did for your software development, MLOps is doing for machine learning models. So they enable you in the entire journey. So right from um, picking data from various sources. So they have data connectors available, which help you to pull data from various sources and keep it inside the MLOps tool. They have perhaps some of them have something called AutoML, which is essentially the ability to create models automatically. So the machine, you don't have to write any code. Uh, you just point the tool to the, uh, to the data and then it creates a model for you. And maybe it gives you five models and you can select which one you want. So there's a bunch of tools which do that. 
Then there's a, a bunch of tools which help you to take your models into production and manage and monitor them, which means that once you created a model and you're happy with it, uh, they would actually help you to um, run experiments, different experiments on your model. You know, data science is a highly iterative process, right? You need right. to run hundreds of models before you finally decide on one. So they would help you to track those, compare them, decide, you know, which one works best, and then finally help you to deploy the selected one into production. And even after that, to monitor it, to ensure that your model is behaving well, there's no drift, there's no, you know, problem in terms of performance, accuracy, et cetera, et cetera, even after it has been deployed. So the MLOps tool provides you, of course, there are, you know, several tools out there which maybe provide bits and pieces of this entire um, workflow, but this is the workflow that they help you with so that the data scientist focuses on his job. Right. And what are some of the drawbacks? You said auto ML, right? What are some of the drawbacks right. of using AutoML versus, I think you also said managed ML, managed ML ops, right? What are the differences right. there and what are some of the benefits and drawbacks? Sure. So AutoML tools enable business analysts to really uh, come in and quickly out of the box, they provide you certain sort of pre-built models to play with. Okay. So th that's that's advantage, obviously, because if you're a business analyst and you really don't know too much about data science, you can click a few buttons and get started and you, you can have predictive models up and running immediately. But the, the problem with that is it's like, you know, I give the analogy of any kid can build a drone in his backyard today, right? So to build a drone is not very tough. You can probably get all the instructions of uh, the internet and start building a drone and it will fly and do stuff, right? But to take that same uh, drone and make thousands of them in production with precision, et cetera, is a completely different ballgame. So while the business analysts can use AutoML to build these three or four models, I suspect that, uh, you know, with my data scientist hat on, I wouldn't be too happy about it. So that's the difference. A data scientist wants to, would want to explore those models, tweak them, probably play with them to ensure that he gets the best performance out of them. He would not be happy with just a black box model that he's been given. So that's the difference in AutoML. It provides you something very quickly out of the box, but if you want to tweak it, typically you cannot. So my ideal would be a mixture of both. So I would say if there were an MLOps tool out there, which would generate these five, five or six models for me, but then enable me to open them up and then tweak them to say that, how can I improve on what you've given me? That would be really great. Got it. I mean, I like this idea of data analysis and data science being this massively iterative process. It's not like you can just put something into a machine and get a solution immediately, right? Right, that's absolutely true. And that's actually an, another problem. It's it's kind of the Wild West, you know, the first phase of uh, data science was like the Wild West in which you have all the bunch of really smart people doing all this stuff. And let's say, you know, you have a business problem to solve and it, your data scientist has run 100 experiments and experiment number 100 really worked well. And he says, you know, this is uh, this is it. This is what I'm going with. And then you ask him, you know, experiment number 73 was pretty good too. And I can, I think, use that and tweak it a little bit and, uh, you know, use it in a different project. And can I, can you show me that? And usually the answer is no, I cannot show you because it's lost on my laptop and I, I forgot what data I used. I forgot what algorithm I used. I forgot the hyperparameters and so on. So MLOps helps you to, you know, sort of monitor all these things. So you just click on experiment 73 and you have all the details in front of you. That's a big, big advantage. Years ago, I was reading this book, I believe it was called Inside the Googleplex or the Googleplex. And one of the arguments that the author about this book was making was that Google itself was just obtaining and saving so much data 
that it was going to be hard for people to compete with them because they just had this massive trove of data and they were just very good at organizing it and of cleaning it. I'm not suggesting that someone should start a search engine today, but I am asking, what does a small company do today that doesn't have 25 years of data at their disposal when they're trying to compete maybe with technology or with a new business model against a company that does have those 25 years of data? Does that make sense? That is a definitely a big advantage for the big companies, as I said earlier, right? They have all this data already collected. However, today what, what's happening is that you have models out there which are already kind of in some sense uh, discounted that data in, in the sense that they've been trained on all that data. So you already have them in place and you can use techniques like transfer learning, et cetera, to just tweak those models. So you give them the incremental data that you have uh, collected perhaps for your domain, and then you transfer the learning or you essentially retrain those models on this smaller data that you have, which then enables you to build on top of the work that's already been done. So there's a lot of uh, stuff that you can do. Then there are ways of generating you know, artificial data. You know, you, even if you have a small amount of data, you can augment it. Data augmentation techniques are there which enable you to create more data and then essentially help train your models better. So there are things out there which you can do as a small company. And when you go in and talk to people about just starting to do data science and data engineering in their companies, what are the, some of the things that maybe surprise you or some of the issues that come up that maybe you understand, but that these companies don't understand and that they're not anticipating when you tell them, they think, oh, I didn't even know that that was a thing. So I think the first thing is always in a, in a new organization, when you're introducing AI or ML for the first time, the, the skepticism is always there, right? I've been, I've been doing this, I've been running this business for 20 years and you know, what are you going to tell me, right? So that uh, is an initial hump that you have to get over. And that's, I think, probably more true of traditional businesses. In uh, new businesses, you know, if you're starting a business right off the bat, you know that machine learning is going to help you. So you, you probably have that in your strategy right up front. But in the traditional uh, businesses, then I think that's a hump that you have to get over, especially uh, if you've been working in the organization for a long, long time. The, the second thing is that, you know, in, in terms of tools and technology. So there's so many tools, uh, so many libraries out there that you tend to get lost in what you want. So that's possibly a pitfall that I would warn against in the sense that uh, you, you want to choose the right tools. You want to make them, you want to make sure that they are as open as possible. Because for example, if you if you go with Python, right, you, you're, in a, you're in safe hands because Python, uh, the community is so vibrant. There's so many libraries out there, et cetera, right. that you, right. you, you're in you know, good shape if you choose that. On the other hand, you could choose an MLOps tool or any tool which ties you to a specific platform, ties you to a specific set of libraries and so on, which uh, then uh, it would be very difficult for you to get out of. I've, I've spoken to customers who say that, you know, we are trying to move from platform X to platform Y and it, it's a nightmare because it just takes so long to, because we have tied up, you know, with platform X. So that's another pitfall that I would definitely uh, avoid. We try to keep the data scientists front and center. So whatever tools they are comfortable with, let's give it, give it to them. At the beginning of this discussion, we were talking about IBM, right? And this was 25, 30 years ago. Back then, you kind of needed to be IBM to have just enough compute and even enough storage to be able to participate in data analysis. But today, with right. this massive drop in storage costs, right? I mean, I have terabytes of data storage and I'm just one person. 
but also the rising power of compute as well. So you have this massive drop in storage costs and then a massive increase in compute power. How does that impact this whole field, ML ops, data science, data analysis? Absolutely. You know, I can I can still recall the days when I got my first computer and it, it was great that we had some a few hundred or maybe it was tens of megabytes of RAM that, you know, that was so exciting. So and now you have all that available in, you know, even the cheapest laptop around. So and I, I, I actually, you know, digressing, but uh, there was a, a story I'd heard that in um, you had to get permission from the government to actually import ram of uh, you know uh, etc in india so so yeah so those are stories uh, which we've heard about 20 25 years back but it's, today it's so easy and that's why i say that you know a high school kid can write a fairly sophisticated machine learning application today with just a week of learning because the libraries are there right. they all do a lot of stuff for you you can go to the cloud and sign up and get like this uh, you know heavy duty hardware pretty cheap yeah, and it's costing you on a minute by minute or second by second basis so you only pay for what you use you can get storage so it's a very exciting time and and that's actually part of the, my my uh, problem because it, it, it is so easy to do that bad practices actually creep in very easily so that's why I call it the Wild West, you see, because things like which we have learned in software engineering, modularity, reusability, uh, you know, all that kind of goes out of the window because it's so uh, easy to do, uh, you know, simple stuff, right? Right. What was your first computer, by the way? Do you remember? I don't remember. I, it must have been an IBM because I worked for IBM. So it would have been, you know, what was IBM PC at that time? Yes. So my first computer at school was, and this is early in high school, is a TRS-80, a Radio Shack TRS-80 with a tape drive. So that oh, was right, right. Yes, I, I, I remember those. Yes, we in, in high school, I worked on. So you, you're right. This is not my first computer. My high school was my first one. Yeah, that, that was, I don't even remember the brand now. Obviously, when I got to Morgan Stanley, we had a computer room and it had an IBM ATXT. I can't remember in there. We actually had a five and a quarter inch floppy drive that was the boot drive. And if you didn't have that thing, you couldn't yes, yes, computer. you couldn't start the machine. Yes. Yeah. So just to give people <laughs> a frame of reference yeah. now, <laughs> where I have a computer on my desk with an M1 Mac chip in it and, a, you know, a terabyte of data there. The, the computer right. power is just so different than it was back then. And I do think it gives companies the ability like it's not a frivolous conversation to talk about how different it is, how different it is, because I do think it gives you the possibility to drive this data analysis and install the right tools. And I'm curious for the tools that you run. I want to talk a little bit about Expresso, if you don't mind, and just how sure. that's different from other ML ops platforms. Absolutely. So just one thing on the, uh, you know, the computing power that you're talking about, it, it also has a downside to it because it makes programmers actually a bit lazy, if I were to uh, say that, because now you know that the bad code that you write will be hidden by the uh, processing power uh, of your computer. So, so that's, uh, as I said, that's, those are some of the pitfalls uh, that are there. And Expresso helps to, uh, you know, cover some of those or helps you to, helps the programmer to get uh, you know, really organized. So, you know, when we started on this journey uh, with uh, Abzuba, and it's been 10 years now, and we're into services, analytic services, uh, you know, we do AI, ML, we do deep learning, computer vision, NLP, everything. And we realized, uh, and the top leadership has been in analytics for a long, long time. We have people who have started their own companies earlier. We have people um, with PhDs in uh, data science, etc. And we realized that 
essentially data science uh, projects are very different from software engineering projects for various reasons because the requirements are not very clear it's a spiral uh, implementation you know you have to do a lot of experimentation before you reach the result as opposed to a normal if you're developing a website or a you know a mobile app or you something like that it's pretty is. linear yeah. exactly you know what the end game is you have your bugs obviously you have your delays but eventually you reach there but in right. machine learning you never know whether you're even going to reach it's like so uh, open ended and uh, because of that you know what happens is that good software development practices get thrown out of the window so what we have tried to do in expresso is try to introduce those software development best practices right up front so for example we have the concept of components and so when you come in into expresso and you start working on a project you work on um, you create components and we support various types of components and those are all object oriented so you get a whole skeleton code we get parent classes and you have to write the subclasses you get the methods very clearly defined and you have to fill in those methods now that helps because uh, firstly it's object oriented design which is uh, modular reusable etc and also because the structure of that code is standardized so there's no problem with documentation so in in a real life project you have people walking in out of the, walking into the project walking out of the project that knowledge transfer becomes very simple and this is a very practical problem right it's very nice to talk about you know i built this great nlp engine but then your team loses one person and all the knowledge goes with him and it's right. again very tough to figure out what did he do you know this was his python notebook what the heck was he trying and so on so now it's all uh, really well organized so that's one big thing that we've done we've also introduced the concept of data versioning now this is extremely critical for data science projects because if you look at a model it really has three inputs to it the first is the algorithm that means you know what are you using are you using sk learn are you using you know a deep learning network whatever whatever you are using the second is the training data because obviously depending on the training data that you provided the model output would change and the third is the hyperparameters because each algorithm has certain you know knobs on the outside which you can control and uh, you control the training right these these are the three inputs so you need to make sure that each of these three inputs is versioned so that you can repeat the experiment later even months later if somebody asks you you know repeat that experiment number 73 that i was talking about you should be able to do it because you have the version you have the data you have the uh, code is obviously versioned uh, most people version code well the data is versioned and we version the hyperparameters as well so all these are versioned plus the output model is versioned so this is one concept we have for model lineage you are able to track your uh, entire uh, process completely the other thing is around devops you know uh, uh, as i said uh, in today's world again containerization is very critical everybody in a good software development and devops practices involve containerization which is not really gone down in machine learning uh, very uh, you know very clearly or very cleanly so we support that right out of the bat we uh, ensure that whatever code you're doing is containerized and deployed but you don't have to worry about it you don't have to set up docker or you don't have to set up kubernetes again we deploy to kubernetes so it becomes scalable and you get the whole container orchestration uh, advantages we deploy to kubeflow spark but the data scientist doesn't need to worry he clicks a button and it's done so these are some of the advantages that you get uh, from express and if you're just starting off we talked about this a little bit but maybe you can address this again in a little bit more detail how does that whole setup work better with smaller data sets, right? In other words, if you're just coming in with a smaller data set, what is the benefit of using this product if your data sets are smaller? 
So it's it's really not so much about the data set or the problem that you're going to solve. It's about the process. So we really believe in a structured process. So whether you're doing you know a few kilobytes or megabytes of data, or you're doing terabytes or petabytes of data, the process has to be really solid. So that uh, in an enterprise, right, you have confidence. The business people have confidence in your process that um, the models you're deploying are not are tested fully, are functional, are high performant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So so and the, uh, this. You know, this whole workflow works the same whether you have a small data set or a large data set. So that's the advantage. And are there any other best practices that some companies, excuse me, should consider when they're implementing this type of stuff? Yeah, so for example, I talked about, uh, you know, versioning. I talked about model versioning, data versioning, hyperparameter. You can have standardized mechanisms for uh, exploring your data. So for example, again, you know, data exploration is, uh, is an art in some sense. In fact, that's why I, one of my pet peeves is that this whole field should not be called data science, it should be called data art, because it's very uh, dependent on the practitioner. Uh, you know, a science is something that is reproducible. If I drop an object, it's going to fall to the ground, whether you drop it or I drop it. But if I solve a data science problem, it's going to be very different. The results are going to be very different depending on whether I have two years experience or 20 years experience. So we are trying to distill all those practices into this, including exploration, you know, standardized mechanisms for exploring, visualizing your data, standard ways of monitoring, you know, that's the other thing uh, of explaining. Um, there are, you know, explainability is a very big research area in, in today's world for machine learning. So we're trying to bring in standardized mechanisms for that. There are um, some things called feature stores, which are uh, again, becoming very critical. Um, these are essentially around reusability of your features, of your feature engineering. So that's another thing that we're trying to bring in into Express. I'm going to let you go, but I do want to say that the title of this episode has to be data science or data art with a question mark after it, because <laughs> I do believe, like you said, it has to be repeatable, right? So physics is yes. repeatable. Um, once you understand it, it works, right? That's the beauty yes. of it. But data science, like we said this from the beginning, it's an iterative art. And if you iterate differently, if two people see the same data, but iterate it differently, they're going to come out with different solutions, which means that every result from that data analysis, again, whether it's descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, or prescriptive is going to be different by definition. So maybe it is an art using created through science. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. So that's, that's one of my, uh, you know, passions, essentially, you know, just structuring the entire field and trying to bring structure into it so that, uh, you know, a, a kid straight out of college, uh, at least is at 70% of the efficiency of a person who has, you know, 15, 20 years of experience. That's, that's good for the enterprise. That's good for organizations like Abzuba and I'm sure for every other company as well. Absolutely. Look, that's a great way to end. I want to thank you so much for coming and doing this today, KK the Chief Architect EVP yeah, in India Country Head for Observer. This was awesome. Thank you very much, Michael. My pleasure and it was great. Uh, thank you for uh, including me on the show.